All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on 1 Corinthians. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching project. And what that means is we're able to give it away for free because of the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. In this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And let's keep the context in mind. As always, that's helpful to remember where we're at in the letter. The overall topic of the main section we're in is eating meat offered to idols. That section began in chapter 8, goes all the way through chapter 10. And the focus is not just meat offered to idols. It's especially about eating in the temple dining rooms and the temple banquet halls. That's the primary thing he's concerned about. Now, he will deal with, at the end of chapter 10, a related issue, buying meat from the meat market. So the main topic of 8 through 10 is eating meat offered to idols. And in chapter 8, Paul raised the topic and what he sees as the underlying issue. The underlying issue is the self-serving knowledge about idols and God uh, that some of the Corinthians have. They know that idols are nothing. They know that there's only one true God. And then they're taking that knowledge and applying it in such a way as to serve themselves in complete disregard for how it might impact their brothers and sisters who are fresh out of pagan idolatrous worship. And so he's called them to use their knowledge and their freedom, not in self-serving ways, but for the good of their brothers and sisters, rather than sin against them by eating in temples. That was chapter 8. Now, in chapter 9, what Paul did was, it felt like a bit of an aside, but what he did really was use his ministry as a model or a pattern for giving up your rights and your freedoms for the sake of others rather than serving yourself. Here now in chapter 10, where we begin in this recording, Paul is going to return to the main topic of idol meat. But before he gets specific and gives the Corinthians some very specific advice on how he wants them to handle it, what Paul does in 10, 1 through 13, the section of this recording, is he offers a warning from Scripture. Specifically, a warning that just having had some spiritual experiences and even uh, being part of the group of people that say they're God's people, that by itself does not give you a free pass. You still have to be faithful to God. So that's really the point here of chapter 10, 1 through 13. And in fact, notice how chapter 10 begins. When you look at the very first word of chapter 10, it's the word for. That is, this flows out, it's logically connected with and flows out of what he said at the end of chapter 9. It's explaining it. It's developing the thought further. So what did he say at the end of chapter 9? Well, Paul said that he disciplines his body and brings it under his control so that he won't be disqualified. That even though he's an apostle, even though he's seen the Lord, he's preached the gospel, he's planted churches, all of that, that those experiences were no guarantee that he would automatically please the Lord. They didn't give him a free pass to kind of indulge himself and do what he wanted. He doesn't want to be disqualified, so he disciplined himself for the sake of faithfulness and godliness. Well, here in the first paragraph of chapter 10, beginning with that word for, Paul develops that idea further. Um, and specifically, he does so with the example of the Israelites during the Exodus. They saw and experienced some incredible acts of God, and guess what? They didn't remain faithful. And as a result, they were disqualified. And so that's what he's going to develop here in chapter 10, 1 through 13. He says, for 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to use the example of the Israelites during the Exodus. And so with these words in verse 1, he recalls the Exodus story, how they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. This is a way simply of using language that was very familiar to those who knew the Old Testament, knew the story uh, from the Exodus story. Exodus chapter 13, for example, verse 21 says, And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on their way. They were under the cloud. Um, and he was in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel both by day or by night. And so God's leading them. That's what it means when it says they were all under the cloud. It's this pillar of cloud that led the Israelites during the day mentioned there in Exodus 13, 21. And so God leads them out of Egypt. He brings them to the Red Sea. And then eventually the Egyptians were like, we just lost a major part of our workforce. And so they pursued them. And now the Israelites were trapped with the Egyptians coming at them on one side and the Red Sea on the other side. So they're trapped and they're terrified. But what happened? Well, Exodus chapter 14, verse 13 says, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will perform for you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see them again, ever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And so there they are trapped between the Egyptians and the Red Sea and God parted the sea and they all passed through the sea safely to the other side. And when the Egyptians tried it, the sea collapsed on them. And so with these words in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1, Paul recalls the Exodus story. And he continues on um, with some specific things from the, the story of the Exodus. So verse 2 says, And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in, in the sea. In other words, through the experience of being led by Moses and the cloud that God gave them out of Egypt and then being led through the Red Sea, they entered into Moses and they became a part of the community of God in Moses through that experience, through the experience of walking across the Red Sea with walls of water on each side. Now, the language obviously in verse 2 is unique but it's intentional. Why does Paul say they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea? Well, because Paul intends by that language to connect the Exodus story with the Corinthian experience. The Corinthian experience was being baptized into Christ. And so he's just using language very intentionally to connect with the Corinthian experience. You entered into Christ through baptism. Well, this was like that for them. This was their moment of entering into the people of God being formed in and through Moses's leadership. And so just as the Corinthians had entered into Christ through baptism, so too the Israelites entered into Moses and what God was doing through him. Not only that, they lived in the desert for 40 years, being led by God and being led through Moses. And when they were living in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided for them. And so verse 3 recalls that moment of wondering for 40 years and how God provided for their physical needs. Verse 3 says, And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. What's the spiritual food? It's manna that was given to them in the wilderness. And what, what does he mean by the same spiritual drink? Well, the spiritual drink was the water that God provided for them out there in the desert at various points along the way, whether it was turning bitter water into fresh water, whether it was bringing water from the rock, God provided water for them. In other words, 
um, they experienced God's faithful provision. They had direct spiritual experiences. And the reason he calls it spiritual food and spiritual drink was the source of that was God through his spirit providing these gifts for them in the desert. And so Paul ends this little description, this recalling of the Exodus story with, again, some unique language that's caused a lot of discussion and debate. But here's what he says. He says, they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, again, that language is a little unique and certainly a little bit weird. Uh, And there's been a lot of discussion and debate and writing among scholars and experts about exactly what Paul means by the way he says what he says. Um, I tend to think it's a little bit of overreading it and overthinking it. What it seems like Paul simply is doing is, again, he's using unique language specifically because he intends to connect the Corinthians' experience of the Spirit coming upon them and some of the spiritual gifts he's going to talk about very shortly, and they're entering into Christ. He's using language that connects the Corinthian experience with the Exodus story. And so I think the simplest way to understand what Paul is saying here at the second half of verse 4 is simply that it was ultimately Christ who provided their food and their drink in the wilderness. This is actually in sync with how Jews in the Old Testament and Jews of Paul's day actually reflected on the Exodus story with one significant twist. For example, when you read the Old Testament or you read some of the Jewish traditions, They identified the source of the water and the source of the food as God or sometimes as the Holy Spirit. And so when you read the writings of the Jews and even some of the other writings in the Old Testament, that's the way they talk about it. And in fact, sometimes when they were talking about God or the Spirit as the source of food and water, they actually referred to God as their rock. For example, Psalm 78. Um, If you read Psalm 78, it is a psalm that retells the story of Israel, specifically focusing on the Exodus story that we have here. And it's telling it to say, and they were so unfaithful and they were so disobedient. And so God punished them in the wilderness, making the exact same point that Paul is making here. And in that context, it talks about water coming from the rock and all of that. And then it says in verse 35, that finally, after their sufferings and some of the the discipline that God had given them in the wilderness, they finally remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. Hear that connection with the idea of the rock. So I I actually think what Paul is simply doing is identifying the Messiah, Jesus, with these very same reflections and traditions that were common among the psalmists, among other Jewish writers of the day. God is their rock. He's the one who provided for them in the wilderness. The twist is that Paul now sees God as the Messiah. He was the one that was present in the uh, the Exodus. He was the one at work providing for them. So what Paul has done is recalled the Exodus events and the wilderness stories and how God led them and God, the Messiah, provided for them. They experienced the spiritual blessings and spiritual experiences of entering into the people of God through Moses. Now, why does he bring all of this up? Well, here's the point. Look at verse 5. The point is, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for their dead bodies were spread out in the wilderness. Paul brings this up as a warning. Even though they had 
all the experience of these spiritual blessings given through the accident, they died in the wilderness because they were unfaithful to God and God wasn't pleased with them. So entering into Moses, seeing the great works of God, eating food and drink that God spiritually provided through them did not automatically guarantee them the promised land. Their dead bodies, it says, uh, were spread all over the wilderness. And this is probably uh, an echo of Numbers chapter 14, where God had said, they'd, they'd sent out the spies, the spies came back, gave a faithless report, and God said to them that because of their unfaithfulness and their disloyalty and their unbelief, that your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness. Numbers 14, 29. And that's what Paul's probably echoing here. And Paul's about to give, in the next few sentences, several examples from the wilderness wanderings of people, Israelites, dying in the wilderness, specifically as a result of their sin and disloyalty to God. And so Paul gives this as a warning. God wasn't pleased with them. They experienced all of this. They entered into all this, and yet God wasn't pleased with them. And so it's a warning that Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians and to us, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Look at verse 6. Now, these things happened as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they indeed craved them. And so that's the, that's the goal of this. Paul's given this example from their experience in the Exodus as a warning to the Corinthians and to us that we wouldn't be like them, that uh, we would not crave the same sort of evil things that they indeed craved. Then he goes on to list several well-known examples of the Exodus generation's unfaithfulness to God there in the wilderness and how that unfaithfulness led to discipline and punishment from God. And so the first example is this, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now, Clearly, this ties in with the immediate topic at hand in Corinth, right? Eating meat offered to idols. And so he says, don't be idolaters. The implication, and he's going to make it very clear in what follows this warning in our next recording, that eating in idol temples is participating in idolatry. Don't do that. Don't be idolaters, as some of that Exodus generation were. And then he makes a quote. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Again, notice the language, eat and drink, in the quote, connects very clearly with the Corinthian situation. The quote comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, which is recalling the golden calf incident. It's Moses' uh, uh, kind of poem or song towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and it recalls the golden calf incident. When Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai, they are now out of Egypt, and while waiting for Moses on the mountain, they got restless, made an idol in the shape of a golden calf, and began to worship it. There's Moses on the mountain receiving the covenant and the law, and they're down at the base of the mountain already practicing idolatry. And it refers to the eating and the drinking in the context of idolatrous worship. Again, the very subject that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. The word translated play there in the quote, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, that word is only used here in the New Testament. But in this context, it refers to lewd, immoral behavior that was often associated with idolatry in the ancient world. 
And so that's probably what leads Paul to the next example from the wilderness wanderings that he gives in verse 8, which is sexual immorality. Look at verse 8. He says, Nor are we to commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. So he's given one example, the idolatry at the base of Mount Sinai. Now he gives another example, sexual immorality. And we know the Corinthians are struggling with that one as well from chapter 6, right? And so we're not supposed to do that like they did either. We should learn from their example there. And here, Paul probably has in mind the events recorded in Numbers 25, 1 through 9, where sexual immorality with Moabite women led to idolatry, and then that led to the people being punished with a plague. Now, one little technical note, um, the Hebrew of Numbers 25 says 24,000. Paul here says 23,000, and no one really knows why there's a difference. Either Paul made a mistake or maybe Paul knew of a textual tradition that we didn't know. Who knows? No one really knows why. But either way, it's a lot of dead bodies that are being spread out over the wilderness. And it came about from their sexual immorality and their idolatry. Uh, then Paul gives another example in verse 9. He says, Nor are we to put the Lord to the test, as some of them did, and were killed by the snakes. This alludes to what happened in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 and following. In that event, the Israelites tested God regarding food. Yep, food. It seems that Paul is being very strategic and selective in the examples he chooses. He's choosing examples that overlap with the Corinthian situation. And they tested God re regarding food. In fact, Numbers 21.5 says, So the, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we are disgusted with the miserable food that we have. And so the Lord punished them with snakes, and many died. And once again, more dead bodies spread through the wilderness, as Paul said, to start this whole section. Then he gives sort of just a general example in verse 10 that kind of bookends the whole section and wraps it up. He says in verse 10, Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. Again, this is more general than the last two examples, which seem to be very specific events in uh, the wilderness wandering stories. There's a number of places that talk about the Israelites grumbling. Famous one is Exodus 17, where they grumble about water and God through Moses brings water from the rock. But there's probably a good chance, even though it's general here, that Paul has Numbers 14 in mind. Because in Numbers 14, the grumbling of the people takes center stage. It's, it's the reason that they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that unbelieving, unfaithful generation dies off. It's the passage that Paul alluded to in verse 5 when he started this whole section and began listing off these examples. Uh, Numbers 14, 29, about the dead bodies being spread in the wilderness. And so probably that's the passage that Paul's alluding to here as he kind of wraps back around to Numbers 14 and wraps up the list. Now, these stories, as it was stated at the outset of these examples, these stories are given as a warning and as an admonition to us, to the Corinthians, and to followers of Jesus. And so, verse 11 says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
couple things to note here. Notice Paul says is these aren't just random stories. They're not just you know, fun Old Testament stories. They're written to warn, he says, and to instruct us. The word instruction sometimes is translated admonition in the sense of warning. Sometimes it's more the sense of instruction. That's how they function. They function as uh, teaching examples for us. And that reminds us that the, well, the Old Testament is written for our benefit, for our instruction. We learn from those examples. And so while we're not under the old covenant, right, the old covenant that was part of the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the old covenant is not our covenant. Nevertheless, the Old Testament scriptures is still God's word for us and still teaches us God's way. And so it's God's word for us, even though it's not God's covenant for us. That's important. And so Paul says, these things were happened to them for, as for our examples. They were written for our instruction so that we would not make the same mistakes that they made. He also describes believers here as those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What does he mean by that? Well, uh, the word ends has the sense of goal or aim. It refers to the culmination of God's plans in Christ. And so what has come about in Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, and then the consequent pouring out of the Spirit is the culmination of uh, God's plans. We're living in the last stage of God's plans before the end of all things and the renewal of all things. It's what N.T. Wright referred to as the climax of the covenant. What God did in Jesus was the climax of the covenant that God made with Israel. It forces us to remember that uh, all of New Testament theology is uh, understood in terms of the overlap of the ages. We live during the beginning of the end, that in the person of Jesus and by the coming of the Spirit, uh, the, the age to come has broken into this present evil age. And those who are in Christ now are those who have been caught up with the, the blessings and the experiences of the age to come. And so the examples from the wilderness wanderings um, are examples that are intended to instruct us who now are experiencing Messiah and the Spirit and all that God has planned for his people. We're, we're experiencing all of that in Christ, and they're written for our instruction and for our examples. And the specific point that Paul makes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that just joining the group of people called uh, the people of God, right? The, the Exodus generation, just joining that group and experiencing those spiritual blessings of the Exodus did not guarantee them the promised land. Spiritual experiences don't replace faithfulness. Therefore, Paul says in verse 12, therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. This is actually a command in Greek, let the one who thinks he stands, right? We have a hard time translating it because in Greek, you could have a third person imperative. In English, you just can't do that. But you can get the force of it by translating it with a must. The one who thinks he stands must watch out that he does not fall. It's the same idea as the well-known proverb, pride goes before destruction. Same idea here. And in the original context, Paul has already told the Corinthians and us by listening in on the conversation that knowledge puffs up. 
knowledge makes conceited and arrogant. And Paul believes that some of them are arrogant and they're using their knowledge in self-serving, arrogant sorts of ways. And they think they stand secure as part of God's people because of what they know and because perhaps of the spiritual experiences they've had. And so they're overconfident. And thus, they're not fully aware of their weakness and their susceptibility to temptation. And so he says, look, if that's you, you must watch out. In other words, you must keep your eyes open. You must beware because it's, if, if you're overconfident, it's really easy to trip up and fall. So Paul says that they, we, need to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we're not immune to temptation. And so we need to be diligent to be faithful. And thus Paul says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. In fact, he's listed off some in the examples from the Israelites above that the Corinthians were facing and that we still face, right? Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, murmuring and complaining against each other and against our leaders in divisive sorts of ways. And whatever other temptations or tests we may face, those things are common to human experience. But we don't deal with it alone. Look what he says in the second half of verse 13. Uh, And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. And so the test to your faith and faithfulness, the temptations that you experience, those are common to human experience, but you don't deal with it alone. You, you have God to help you and God is faithful. He, his aim is not for you or for I or for them to fail. God's not setting them up or us up with an impossible test, hoping that we'll crash and burn. No, God wants you to be faithful. And so he actually provides his help so that you can endure it. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also. And so he'll provide help so that you can endure it. Uh, And one of the ways he provides help is he provides the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. And so God uh, offers his help so that we can stand faithful when we encounter various temptations and various tests to our faith. The reason I say temptations or tests is the word translated temptation here can mean uh, a, what we usually mean by temptation, or it can mean a trial that could become a temptation. It is a test to our faith and our faithfulness. And God is faithful in helping us stand firm if we will trust him. And so we need to humble ourselves, recognizing that we are susceptible to temptation and look to God for his help so that we can stand firm. And that's really, I think, one of the main things we can learn from this section. The main thing Paul wants us to learn is the importance of faithfulness. Uh, That relying on past spiritual experiences. Back, you know, then I had all these spiritual experiences. Relying on past, maybe, deeds of ministry and faithfulness. Church attendance, religious activity, or even family heritage. My my dad was a pastor, and my grandpa was a pastor, my great-grandpa was a pastor. Whatever it is, our family heritage. Relying on all those things are no substitute for faithfulness. And the fact is, is I've heard all of those things, church attendance, spiritual experiences in the past, religious activity, family heritage. I've heard all of those used as reasons why someone thought they were good with God, even though they were clearly and obviously sinning against him. And you see those same sorts of things in the Bible. 
And the warning of this passage is that there, these kinds of things are no substitute for ongoing faithfulness to God. Not perfection, not perfect obedience, just faithfulness, loyalty to him. And while tests to our faith and faithfulness are real, so is the help that God provides. And so let the one who thinks he stands and thinks he's fine and thinks, right, who, who's conceited, let him take heed humble himself or humble herself and cast themselves on the mercy and the help of God so that we might be able to stand firm clear till the end. Because that's what it requires, standing firm till the end. And that requires a little bit of circumspection, a little bit of humility, a little bit of self-awareness realizing, um, there but the grace of God go I.